where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! Ha <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. There are students speaking out now, and the more, and staff and faculty, and, and the more that that happens, the more you realize that though they may have been silent for the last year, they weren't, you know, they were, they were complying, but they weren't willingly making a free and cho informed choice about what they were doing. Hey everybody, welcome to Open Mic with Michael Thiessen. Today is a special episode and it's an important episode because we have two interviews. So my first interview is going to be a whistleblower from Western University named Lindsay Lowry. And Lindsay, uh, she's just talking about the environment on the ground at Western right now as being a staff member and it's just, it's not a good environment. So she's gonna be sharing about that. And then after that, I wanted to connect that dialogue with the broader conversation about Western and coercion and, and education and the nature of privatized or public education. And in order to do that, I brought on Dr. Julie Panessi. So sit back and enjoy. This is going to be, you know, one interview about 30 minutes long, followed by a 45 minute interview. And I hope you can listen to it all. And while you listen to it all, I hope you are able to enjoy a freshly roasted coffee that will support Liberty Coalition Canada at the same time. Did you know that Resistance Coffee Company is a Canadian coffee roastery that gives a portion of every sale to organizations fighting for constitutional freedoms such as ours? And if you go to resistancecoffee.com slash LCC, if you go there today, 15% of your order will go directly to Liberty Coalition. So Resistance Coffee is a small batch roastery, which ensures you are never drinking old and stale coffee like you find at the grocery store. Get freshly roasted, specialty grade coffee delivered to you right at your doorstep. And again, enjoy that knowing your money isn't funding leftist causes that you despise. So drink their great coffee. If you don't have any of that right now, go make yourself a bitter cup of coffee while you listen to this episode and then think the entire time how you might go out and go to resistancecoffee.com slash LCC. Thanks for listening, everybody. And now we bring on Lindsay Lowry. Lindsay uh, is a whistleblower from Western University. This is a big interview for her. This is a big deal. And Lindsay, I am thankful for your courage to come on and talk to us and share with our listeners about what's going on at Western. So Lindsay, why don't you start by sharing with everybody your role at Western University and why we are talking today. Sure. Thanks, Mike, for having me on the show. Um, I work at Western University. I've been there for about four years now. Um, I work specifically at Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry. Um, I've decided to come on today uh, to speak about Western's mandates and other requirements that they're requiring for staff and students um, and some visitors. Um, 
I am double vaccinated right now and have decided to leave my job due to their mandate of uh, a third booster, um, potentially more after that as well. It seems to me, Lindsay, that you're probably one of those people who uh, saw at the very beginning that maybe you wanted to care for other people or, uh, you know, the, 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 the university was selling a certain narrative and you were at least willing to comply at the beginning there. Um, talk about what is going on on campus or among the staff and faculty, maybe around that first decision to get that double vaccination. Are we talking about coercion? Are we talking about a lot of pressure? For sure. I would say it's a little bit of both. Um, the science has changed a lot publicly since the first mandate went out. There was definitely lots of push from Western um, before they mandated it. First started out as highly recommending it. Um, they were also doing pretty extreme measures at this time. Uh, masking, uh, personal PPE, like plastic around our areas and things like that. Um, the staff culture at that point was definitely more positive. People were hesitant because the vaccine was still new. Uh, but definitely what you said, it felt like somewhat we were doing it for the greater good. Um, in my personal situation, um, leaving my job at that point just wasn't an option. Um, so I did feel coercion as well. It didn't really feel like there was a choice. It was if I want to keep my job still, I would have to go do this. Uh, so I did see coercion the first time around as well, but decided to get the vaccine twice, um, but had drawn my line in the sand saying, if it happens again, I'm not doing it anymore. And unfortunately, that's what they've decided to go ahead and do. So just to be very clear, I, I'm pretty sure everybody is aware of this um, because of like high profile stories like Dr. Julie Panessi, but the school actually has mandated it is it is a requirement for employment that you receive this experimental jab. Correct. By January 9th, 2023, which they extended it from October 1st, uh, the actual policy says that you need a third booster and potentially more. So they've kind of kept it open in the actual policy for them. Yes. So, you know, if you were to, if we were to be able to rewind history and there was no mandate, it was just highly recommended. And there wasn't the kind of brouhaha of, of, you know, everybody's virtue signaling towards getting the vaccine. Would you have ever have gotten the vaccine for COVID-19? Uh, I don't think so. I'm the only one in my entire family uh, that is vaccinated. Uh, and it, again, it was to keep my job. At that point, I was still trying to do some research. Yes, the, the propaganda and the information was definitely go get your vaccine. But I was still very hesitant at that point. There hadn't been much testing done. Uh, there still hasn't been too much testing done long term. So the reason why I asked that question is it seems so obvious, but that you're really you represent a, a significant people group across the globe who would say, wait a minute, typically when it comes to my own medical decisions, I would investigate maybe get a second opinion and then I would choose for myself. I, I, I would not be coerced by my, like, you know, no one's pushing any you know, Western still hasn't done anything about the in, influenza, very, very similar right. virus. They, they've never mandated that. No. So um, why did you decide to draw your line in the sand uh, be, between the first and second, simply because, you know, 
that's that's a step too far like the way that the twitter feed says enough is enough like you know we went with you we were able to be cooperative but you know now is the time to make sure that this doesn't continue is this your statement towards that i honestly regret being coerced the first time to be honest i think over since the first mandate and then extending it it really showed that this is not about our safety um, there's plenty of science out there now. And I just think that, yeah, like I wouldn't have gone to do the first two um, and I wouldn't recommend people do it. This shouldn't be something that Western feels they have the authority over, um, especially coming out of a medical school, a scientific school. Um, I would have thought we taught people to critically think, uh, ask questions, question policies like this and ethics as well. Um, and this is what we should be encouraging our future doctors as well that we teach at the school. So you and I began the interview with you saying, you know, I'm currently leaving this position. And that struck me because I, would that would that mean that you're assuming that this conversation is your is your resignation letter or or sorry, it would I don't want to put words in your mouth and I don't want to put words in the video. I want to be very careful here. You're assuming that there are going to be repercussions of speaking publicly about how you feel coerced by the school and how unethical this is. Yes. Um, I've made my decision to leave, leave as of January 1st. At this point, it doesn't matter to me if it's tomorrow or January. Um, I want people to know what's going on at Western. Uh, the work environment that we are all in, everything's very divided with employees, whether with their opinions of whether you should and shouldn't. Um, and I really want people to know this, especially if they're planning on sending their children here in the future, just to know what Western is actually representing and whether it's safe for your child to attend. So can you try to give some really um, image driven descriptions of what it's like on campus? I, I, you know, I, I went into um, I went into an office area the other day and it was one of the very few areas um, in uh, where, where we're currently staying, where masks were asked for. And you could just see the difference of the environment. So what is the environment like when you have a staff that's still pretending in many respects that this is a terrifying situation? What, like, what is that like? Is it, is it right down the middle like every other institution? But how does that manifest itself on a daily basis? Are they still forcing masks? for staff um, is, is like the mob still kind of virtue forcing masks. Uh, what, what's it like on the ground? Uh, yeah. Like I said, it's very divided. Um, there is lots of virtue signaling um, from staff specifically too. Um, masks are not mandated in most areas, but you can see a lot of people wearing masks again, willingly. Um, for instance, I had a cold last month. And when I returned, I had a slight cold still. And, and I was what I consider bullied because I didn't want to put on a mask when I was walking around. Um, I gave people the option of them putting on a mask or staying six feet away or whatever they wanted to do. Um, but the, I was essentially asked to stand outside offices, not enter places, things like that. Um, every I've lost colleagues that are friends that just believe I'm being selfish by not trying to stop the spread of COVID. Um, so it's, I don't give an opinion much at work anymore because it's so hostile. Um, people 
are looking at whether you're wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. Are you a good employee? Are you a bad employee? Things like that. And it's just become too hard to deal with at this point. When you say like, you know, we were dealing with an academic situation, we're dealing with an academic institution, we're dealing with a, a school of medicine and dentistry and people are behaving this way. What is that doing for you personally on a day to day? Like I, I, I really struggle with trust in many of the medical profession that that's got to be quite like being right there up front with individuals who need to read three articles and they would know better. Like it, it, uh, what's that like day to day on your emotions? Uh, I've definitely lost trust in people I work for Western as a whole, what they represent, the work that they do. Um, it just doesn't seem like if you were a physician and like you said, if you read three articles, your opinion could change on a daily, it's stressful. Um, I don't feel motivated to go to work. Um, I don't really want to be at work. And to be honest, I don't want to be in public education or public health at all anymore. I don't want to be involved in any of it because it seems like everything is very targeted to the narrative. And if you're not going to follow the narrative, then you are not really wanted there. How it feels. So what's that like for the, for the atmosphere itself? Like, are there many people on the Western campus walking around feeling the same way you do? Do you have these little freedom groups or, or do you just have venting places? Like is, um, are there a lot of people walking around the Western campus feeling like, wow, this is a, this is a sad place to be at, but I, but I have to keep my job. I got to keep paying the bills. Uh, no, there's not really anything like that. It's actually pretty lonely. You don't really have anywhere to go or know who feels what, or if you're brave enough to speak to them about your opinions. Um, I have seen that the students look like they've gathered together more, especially with the third mandate that, and I'm hoping that they've found resources and things like that. But amongst staff, it seems pretty cricket and isolating. There's nowhere to really go and vent about it. You just kind of put your head down and go to work and try to keep your job for another day. Wow. While talking to Lindsay, it just reminds me of businesses who from 2020 and 2021 and now into 2022 have been forcing employees to muzzle their faces or firing people unless they could prove that they had an experimental jab in them. And whatever happened to workplaces being about hard work, integrity, and respecting our rights and freedoms. It's important for me to read this ad right in the middle of our interview with Lindsay, because that's why you need to go and connect with Red Balloon today. If you're a Canadian business that wants solid employees who don't care about having woke, statist, ESG-friendly workplace, then sign up for redballoon.org backslash LCC to post jobs for great employees. And if you're looking for a workplace because you're feeling like you're forced out of your current work environment and you're looking for a place that will respect your rights and freedoms and your conscience, then you go and you sign up at redballoon.org backslash LCC to find great employers. Let's make Canadian businesses cancel proof. Let's build a solid economy together at redballoon.org backslash LCC. So you realize, I don't know if you've ever read the novel 1984, but you realize you're describing literally what the characters did in 1984, where you would go to work and you, I can remember it within the book, you know, the, the lead character, uh, describing like, 
can I trust that person? And I will just look them, I will just look them in the eyes or, or, you know, I've, I've learned not to trust A, B, and C. And, and the indicators of not trusting was like one glance to the side and and it was a, an entire um, situation of silence and careful navigation that, that you, you couldn't call in any way adult uh, kind behavior. It, it was like, clandestine everyone everyone's inside their own heads trying to figure out what everyone else is doing and the that it's a it's a sickening feeling and it, is that what you're describing is exactly, is the university exactly of western how I feel. yeah that's exactly which is scary because i have read that book and that's it, scary it, it is scary and it, it you know I'm, I'm thankful that you're speaking up about this Lindsay. uh you're, you're whistleblowing on a story that I think is a really common experience, but so many people are still struggling to speak up about it. Um, folks, look, you, you have to hear Lindsay. You got you to gotta share this around. Sending your kids to Western University is like sending them into the novel of 1984. And, uh, you know, we haven't even talked about the content of the lectures within the lecture halls. And that's, you know, that's for another discussion. We're just talking about the atmosphere of whether or not you can question such um, such a forceful, angry, disgruntled, and at the same time compliant staff at Western. Just imagine trying to talk about issues that are even more difficult than whether I should wear a mask or not, or my private medical health, you know, my private private medical health interests, you know, I, I'm really surprised though, Lindsay, maybe, maybe this is speculation and you're not comfortable, you know, uh, answering this question, but, um, but where do you think is this, is, are these policies being driven by like a, a medical faculty, like a COVID-19 command center within Western University? Like, are there three or four doctors that continue to drive this paranoia? I don't honestly know that answer. Um, I would say, yes, I do believe they, they have a COVID committee. I would be very surprised if they did not. Uh, what I find kind of interesting about that is that they continually drive into us that they use these same top medical experts. So the experts of our chief medical officer of Ontario, London, et cetera. Well, these were the exact same experts that Fanshawe College also used and got the exact same outcome. However, Fanshawe did not put their mandate in. So I find it interesting to say that you're following these experts, but at the same time, you're giving a completely different outcome to a school across the city with lots of students as well that got the exact same advice from the exact same professionals. So I find that very interesting. Yeah, it's also just you know it's also just absurd on its face. The kids are all going all throughout the city. Uh, the 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 staff are going all throughout the city into many places where you don't have to be vaccinated, and they're coming back onto the campus. And somehow, um, this vaccine that has been proven not to work. Uh, is going to safeguard these students from getting sick. And, uh, you know, it, it's absurd in the sense of just containment. It's absurd uh, in, in the sense, man, absurd seems to be my favorite word today. I was just podcasting with the other guys and I, I keep using that word because it, we're, it, it, 
it's, you know, even what you described there, I asked you whether there's a COVID-19 command table and you're like, I'm sure there is, but I don't know what it is. So right there is another is another big brother metaphor. Like who is big brother? Right. Like, did, right. Does big brother even exist? We don't even know who big brother is. And that's what we've seen with a number of, of these mandates and a number of these responses, you know, decisions about students, religious exemptions, you know, decisions about students, medical exemptions come from a nameless email, like a nameless entity. Um, there's, there's zero accountability because, you know, it, you know, to be honest with you, Lindsay, it, it, it could have been you sending out the emails to people saying, no, I don't I don't validate your your religious beliefs anymore uh, because you're just an administrative coordinator, whether or not you had those that expertise or not, because it's this big nameless entity. So how do you feel about about your employment in the sense that, like, does the HR department seek to address any grievances for individuals feeling outside like yourself? Um, so the first round of COVID back in 2021, I had finished maternity leave and was just coming back. The entire workforce at Western uh, was told to work from home at this time. When I was coming back, they told me I was to come into the office full time, which I didn't understand why I was to come into the office when they were all worried about my safety and everybody else was at home. So I had gone to HR at that point to file a grievance and they had told me, well, if they provide you a mask and some PPE, then you have to go in, even though everybody else on campus is staying home. So I did go in for six months, not that I was honestly worried about COVID, it was just also convenient to work at home when everybody else was as well. Um, so after that point, uh, there's also been other situations. For instance, in August, uh, probably about a week to two weeks before um, the mandate was sent out, which I found out on social media before my employer. Um, I attended a ceremony on campus that had close to 3,000 people at it inside, um, unmasked, no requirements for anything. And then they're sending us this uh, policy that's going to be updated two weeks later, saying this is no longer safe to do this kind of thing. So there's just not been science to follow this from the beginning. Um, it seems more about control than anything. Well, that's certainly how I feel, and I don't really care about the science anyways. I yeah. still want freedom to be able Absolutely. to, you know, if, if I want to congregate with 3,000 people and we're all going to get sick with a flu and we're all going to get sick and die, then okay, when we, we get to choose to do stuff like that. And um, now, again, of course, that's not even the reality. And it the reality would be that it would probably be good caring individuals who would be out there meeting those needs of individuals who, if they were really sick, but that's not been the case at all. Um, if you had a message for the Western administration, like I'm, I'm thinking again, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Julie Panessi. She's going to come on and we're going to talk a little bit about this as a follow-up to our interview today. Um, you know, She's been called all sorts of names uh, by the school, you know, obviously fired. Um, if you have one thing to say directly to the administration, as, a, as someone who, you know, at one point maybe cared deeply for the institution, cared about your own employment, cared about your coworkers, what would your statement be to, to Western? I would say that if you have any reservations about this and you're sitting silently and not getting the support, this is the time to speak out. Um, Dr. Panessi for me per personally has been one of the reasons I have spoken out. Uh, what is happening is not right at Western and it's not ha right any organization. 
The fact that we have all of this data to say this does not work, does not prevent transmission, et cetera, you should not be letting, ethically, you should not be letting any workplace control this. And I think this is our time to stand together and stand up to Western. Uh, but I think it takes a lot of people coming forward and reaching out and trying to get the support from each other to take a stand against Western. So folks, if you are listening and um, you are also a Western employee and you want to come on and talk about your experience at Western, if you want to uh, talk about your experience at another university or another hospital, you know, that's partly what we've been doing here. We've just been digging down and doing interviews with people who are sharing their experience. So just to summarize, Lindsay, I just want, you know, again, I, I think in court, this would be called leading the witness, but I'm not in court and we get to do what we want here. Um, first and second shot, you were not overly concerned with COVID-19. You only got the shot in order to keep your employment. Correct. Secondly, um, you are working in a daily basis where you have to keep your head down, uh, your words. And you can only guess what other people are thinking, partly because of the masks over their face that you can't see their facial expressions. And then and then also because of previous experiences where you've been kept out of offices, you've been um, bullied to put a mask on. And outside of that, everyone else is just kind of silent and, and kind of, you know, looking away. So you might have some quiet supporters. But the reality of it is it's it's a, it's a it's an environment of of silence and silencing. Exactly. You are not free to make your choice. Third or and, and even just it, it doesn't even sound like you're even free to discuss it. Hardly, you know. No, at your own risk. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. Hostile. Thirdly, you don't know, even as an employee, who's making the decisions for these policies and mandates. It's not been publicly shared information with you. So it's coming from a nameless source. So, folks, the reason why I'm going over this is because, like, is this the is this the environment that you want to live in? This this is a this is a Canadian university that in my entire lifetime of growing up would have been held uh held up, put on a pedestal for its business programs. And this is how they're treating their employees. And it's literally from a fiction book that was based out of the history of, 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 of Stalin's communism. Like folks, like let that sink in. We're not talking, like we're not talking about fiction anymore. We're talking about, going to work down the street at London. And Lindsay, I, I know I, I, I'm repeating all of that. And it's because I want our listeners to understand how, how little they, the average person might see this. Like the average person is going to say, Hey, Canada's normal. Canada's free. You can still drive down the street. No, you, you, you don't have uh, vaccine mandates uh, anywhere, you know, around anymore, or you don't have uh, vaccine passports and all those types of things, but they're not seeing individuals like yourself who are living in captivity every single day and you've already complied. You're not even like some of the early non-compliant people. You went along with the narrative at the beginning in order to, in order to save your own career in order to save your job. And that's not even been good enough for this school. 
So I'm really sorry for the situation that you find yourself in. I, I certainly hope that your health is not compromised because of those first two jabs. You know, Lindsay, we we pray pretty regularly for people who are in your situation. Um, you know, I hear all the time of individuals who, you know, uh, it's been a few months since they've had their their vaccination and now they're having health complications. And, you know, of course, there's yeah. very little accountability or correlate, you know, investigation there. And uh, so, so, you know, I, I try to regularly pray for folks like yourself who really felt pushed into this. So, because yeah. I do feel anxiety from that exact thing, because that's all you see in the news now. And it feels like, well, I just, I listened to Western and was it worth it? No, shouldn't have done it the first time. And it shouldn't have been done the second time or the third time or fourth. It should be up to us. To yeah. Specifically as you're doing yeah, specifically as you're doing your research, look into antibody dependent enhancement. And it's just, um, it's the reason why uh, a coronavirus has never worked in humans. I mean, a, a coronavirus vaccine has never worked in humans. And um, it's just important because you are helping yourself right now by not compounding the, 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 the booster with, with the booster. And, um, yeah, that that's a tough one, and I'm I'm sorry that you're going to have to live with that anxiety. And again, uh, you know, my my encouragement to you is, uh, pray to the Lord and and uh, seek His help. And uh, yeah, we just are thankful that you're on here uh, sharing your story. Do you have any other like on the ground footage for us in the sense of just any other stories that can help people understand what's it like being on the Western campus? Um, it was maybe applied a little bit more before to the first mandate. So after we were mandated to get the first two shots, uh, we had to show Western our proof. Well, after that, then they said, well, if you want to sit down in dining and, or go to Tim Hortons and sit down, then you had to have a QR code on top of already telling the university. So I had told the university, but I have refused a vaccine passport from the beginning. I've never signed up for one. So I was still secluded from that. I wasn't able to go out for work lunches, um, be part of the team. Only people that had QR codes could do that. So that's just another example to show. I'd already told them I'd done it, and I still was excluded from other events right on campus. So I just thought I'd share that as well. No, that's very helpful because you just can't go far enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and again, like – can you I can't even imagine that we're talking about the Canada that I used to know, but but the reality of it is is when en enough people put their head in the yeah. sand and enough people just turn a blind eye, this is exactly how the state gets a gets authoritarian and and gets its way. Well, look, thank you for coming on and talking with me. I'm about to go on and interview Dr. Julie Panessi and and I'm looking forward to uh, you know talking about your situation uh, specifically. So, Lindsay, thanks for sharing your story. And we are trying to stand up against Western and uh, get this university back on track. Whatever, whatever crazy is up at the top there, uh, they're either making money or they've lost their mind. So uh, I, I'm glad you're, you're kind of sharing your concerns right there. Thanks for coming on. We'll talk to you later. Bye. So that portion of our interview with Lindsay Lowry was really helpful. I consider Lindsay... Uh, someone who is learning how to be courageous, and, and that's the making of a hero. And another hero that we're about to speak to today is Dr. Julie Panessi. And I say hero in a, a real serious sense. She's spoken carefully 
and she's spoken uh, eloquently and yet faced a very clean termination from Western University. She has counted the cost to speak up for liberty and to speak up for ethics, and she really is a Canadian hero. And I want to tell you about my friends at Rocklink Investment Partners. They're the sponsors for this portion of the podcast. Listen, you guys got out of mainstream media when you started listening to crazy podcasts like ours. And we also want to get you out of mainstream investment management, whether it's planning for retirement or just looking for ways to protect your wealth from an overreaching government. Rocklink can help you out. These guys have been our friends like just in the truest sense of that word, they've just been friends who have been freedom fighters throughout the entire pandemic. And they're not too uh, a big bank that's going to treat you like a number. They're not owned by the Davos crowd. They are a private company filled with freedom-loving Canadians offering independent investment advice. So give them a call at 905-631-5462 or send them an email at info at rocklink. That's rocklink with a C dot com info at rocklinkwithac.com. And now we're going to bring on Julie, and I'm so happy to have this conversation with her. We're continuing the conversation about Western today, and now I'm beginning an interview with Julie Panessi. And we've brought Dr. Julie on in order to kind of refine our discussion. So Julie, to bring you in, uh, to the conversation, let's just keep talking about the environment about Western. So can you mm -hmm. give a quick recap about how Western treated you? And then if you wouldn't mind, do you, are, are you getting stories on the ground from faculty and staff that are just exhausted? And just so you know, yesterday when, when Lindsay was describing the environment, she described it as a, you know, you keep your head down, you don't say anything. Sometimes you feel like you're getting bullied to do a certain thing. And honestly, her description of it, I, I know that we can at times overuse illustrations, but it literally reminded me of a chat of one of the opening chapters of 1984 um, mm -hmm. when the main character is talking about like trying to not like not let them even know what his inner thoughts were. So kind of help us with that, paint that picture of what's going on on the Western campus right now. Well, I it, it, so it, this is such a surreal experience because almost a year ago, well, a year and a month ago, I guess, I was terminated with cause from Western. I taught ethics and ancient philosophy in, in, in the philosophy department at Huron College, which is one of the affiliate colleges at Western. And I was terminated with cause for challenge, refusing to comply with and also challenging their COVID policy, which contained a vaccine mandate. Right. And I said, I'm not complying with providing proof of vaccination. I'm not complying with masking. I'm not complying with testing because I didn't think that any of it was justified. And then, of course, there are worries about the harms. But anyway, so I was publicly terminated. At that time, I felt like I was the only one who had a problem with this, that I was the only one speaking out. There were a couple of others. Um, Every other person I knew, very small number, who did what I did was terminated efficiently, quickly, and quietly. Fast forward to late August of this year, when I participated in the rally that was organized by Students for Agency at Western. Thank goodness. Totally different picture. Um, there are students speaking out now. And the more 
and, and staff and faculty. And, and the more that that happens, the more you realize that though they may have been silent for the last year, they weren't, you know, they were, they were complying, but they weren't willingly making a free and cho informed choice about what they were doing, right? And more and more stories are coming out all the time. Uh, Kendra Hancock and, um, and, and Hannah Solomon Vey and, and, and a number of, uh, I think the guests you just had. Um, and I have sp spoken to so many students who say things like, I waited until the very last day to book my vaccine appointment in the hopes that something would change very last day, very last moment. I didn't want to do it. I didn't understand why this was being asked of us. We're young, healthy people. Um, you know, the most people have had, oh, and then they say, you know, we all got vaccinated and then COVID, sp COVID spread through the campus anyway. So that made me think for a minute. So even people who were on board a year ago or eight months ago went through a year on campus with the imposition of this mandate, seeing the real life <laughs> concrete effects of it, they all got COVID anyway. And on top of that, a number of them are suffering from what they believe to be vaccine adverse events. So it's a totally different picture this year. There are so many amazing groups. I mentioned Students for Agency, the Amity Project, Harry Wade, who was the engineering student who got kicked out of Western. So many other students are organizing themselves, they're fighting back legally, they're creating social media campaigns, and they are the brightest, most eloquent, I know you've spoken with some of them, most eloquent, most courageous, deep, um, accountable people that you will ever meet. And the irony here is that Western is trying to exclude from participation in the Western community exactly those people who have already learned the skills that the university is supposed to be teaching, which is critical thinking, demanding evidence, being allowed to ask questions, personal integrity, understanding what it is to make a free and autonomous choice, and my goodness, the ability to be courageous. These are students who have already learned all of these things. They don't need the poor quality education that Western is offering them and they're finally standing up and saying that and I'm so grateful for them. Thank goodness. So many thoughts going through my mind based upon <laughs> how you just reacted there. So first of all, the general story seems to be, and this came from Lindsay yesterday, you've just reiterated again, so many people chose to be vaccinated because they were coerced and did mm -hmm. not feel like they had any other option. Mm -hmm. Number two, you're right. Many of those people are are questioning whether there is vaccine injury going on. And you and I both know that how little accountability is actually going into the research of that. But it's all of those mm -hmm. anecdotal stories that seem to be very similar. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing that you just said um, that's really important is that there's been a change in the ethos of the students and the courage. But it's interesting mm -hmm. talking to Lindsay yesterday, Julie, there hasn't been a change from up top and it still remains this nameless, voiceless committee that seems to be steering these ridiculous mandates, even though the culture has changed. Uh, and then fourthly, you know, the, your comments about excluding the very students that have learned the skills, it's very similar to what we've seen in so many other organizations where individuals who are whistleblowing actually feel that the institution is going through a brain drain because of the very things that they're doing. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. I, I think we should chat about the uh, decision from Justice Tranquilly that rejected the five students' claim that um, their uh, the vaccine mandate was inappropriately requesting personal uh, health information from them. And one of the things that's so incredibly interesting about her judgment is she addresses at the very end, I think it's the third last item in her in her decision, uh, she addresses the nature of coercion. And she said, and I've got it right here, so I can read exactly what she says. She says, I because the, the students, the plaintiffs claim that they mandate is coercive, right? That it leaves them with very few options or few desirable options, right? They can either comply with the mandate, sacrifice their bodily autonomy for the sake of their education, or they can choose not to comply with the mandate and sacrifice their education for the sake of bodily autonomy. So that is textbook case of coercion, right? But listen to what Tranquilly has to say about it. She said, I do not agree with the applicant's characterization of the policy as being coercive in nature. The policy forces individuals to choose between two alternatives, even if they like neither option. The choice is the individual's to make. Each choice comes with its own consequences. That is the nature of choices. So what Tranquilly is doing there, because I, we've got to understand what is the reasoning behind rejecting all of these anti-mandate cases? Why are they all being dismissed out of hand like a reflex reaction? And I think a nugget of the answer is in that paragraph. And her reasoning seems to be that whenever it's possible to select from more than one option, you've got choice. And whenever there's choice, coercion is in principle impossible. But the problem with that view is that she's basically defining coercion out of existence by closing the space between physical force on the one hand and free and autonomous choice on the other hand. So in the case of, of physical force, you, you have no options. If someone who's stronger than you takes your hand and uses it to slap someone else, well, you weren't coerced. It was literally impossible for you to do otherwise, right? Um, and then the, the sort of the opposite end of that spectrum would be a free and autonomous choice selecting from a range of options, all of which are supported, all of which you understand, all of which you have full information for, and you make a free, unconstrained choice that isn't under duress in any way. Um, and so Tranquilly seems to be saying that, well, as long as you aren't being literally forced, slapping someone, you know, in the face against your will, you've got choice. What's the problem? And I think as... Just, just Julie, not yeah. to... To, in, to interrupt your thought really briefly, I just want to add a parallel to this because we've heard this previously. This is similar mm -hmm. to the Alberta judge in talking about um, – I'm not sure if it was Coates or Stevens, but they basically said, well, they had a choice. They had a choice uh, to uh, adhere to the bail hearing uh, or to go to jail, and they chose to go to jail. That's their choice. They weren't coerced to do anything. So I think your analysis is 100% accurate, and we've heard this before. Continue. Well, I was just going to say, I think you're right. And and the fact that we're seeing that kind of consistent language and consistent ideology within, you know, among the court's uh, decisions is telling. What, is, what does it tell us about? What does it indicate? Well, I think it's indicating what is a kind of neoliberal, social justice, progressive sort of ideology, according to which placing someone a in a position 
where he or she feels pressure to choose one option over the other one is not bad from a normative point of view, according to this view. Why not? Because what's important is not that the person acts as an individual free agent. That's not what's important in life. That's not what's important in ethics or law or when it comes to democracy. What's important is that they make the right decision. So the fact that they are prevented culturally or legally from being able to make the wrong decision, but the one that they want to make is not important. That's not something the courts should support. That's not something that our democracy is interested in supporting. And that is the agenda of the neoliberals, which is exactly contra to the notion of classical liberalism, which is creating the widest sphere possible for humans to exercise their agency, regardless of what their choices are, as long as they don't hurt others' ability to do so as well. Okay, so this is where I really want to dig into the nuance of this conversation. Um, I want to dig into it in two ways. You know, one way that's coming, and that's in that's in the idea of uh, privatized education, privatized charter schools versus public schools. Because again, this is where coercion comes in. If I have a number of mm-hmm. publicly funded universities that are the only alternative for education. It's not the same thing as saying, hey, you know what? You don't like Western's policies and standards. Go to another school. And then the mm-hmm. other thing I want to talk about, that's what you know is coming. And, and we can get into that because uh, mm-hmm. this is an important – we have to get nuanced on this because it is important that students and institutions do have their own choices and agreement in education. And I'll give you a few examples. So, for example, I've gone to a number of Christian universities. I've gone to a theological seminary. I've gone to, uh, I've sent my son to a a particular university in Ohio. And that is because they've told me as a donor and as a parent, this is our philosophy of education. This is what we will do. This is what we won't do. And therefore I enter into a contract agreement. Now, in order to go that, I agree to pay a certain number of tuition. My son agrees to a, a, to a, to a code of conduct. Um, in, in previously attending these schools, I've had to agree on the authority of God's word. I've had to agree upon, uh, certain views of marriage. I've had to agree on, uh, even, even areas like alcohol, where I typically would, would consume alcohol and do that carefully. It while going to these institutions, I made the agreement that I wouldn't mm-hmm. participate in the consumption of alcohol. Now, in none of those situations, I felt coerced because I was choosing to go, mm-hmm. we we had an we had an, we had an agreement, educator to to student. Now, Western's not done this. They they put these mandates in mid year. I I don't I don't believe any of them are returning any tuition. Specifically, this most recent announcement about these particular vaccine mandates, the third booster mandates, came a week after people had paid tuition. Um, so. Number one, can you can you give me any information? Is Western offering reimbursement to students? And and number two, what's the difference between me choosing to go to a school that, like, um, I I don't I don't want to give my money to educators mm-hmm. who are going to be Marxists, so I'll go to a place that I'll choose. But of course, mm-hmm. we come to an agreement. And then halfway through that agreement, I can't turn around and say, hey, I want my money back because uh, uh, 
you know, all of a sudden, you know, I've changed my mind. I understand that we need the nuance in education. What's the difference here, Julie, between charter selection, contractual agreements, and what Western's done? And then we'll get into the private public stuff. Right. So to answer the first question, the practicalities about whether or not students are getting any refunds, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's a good one. We should figure that out. Uh, what typically happens and what's reported on the registrar's homepage is that there's there's a schedule of refunds that are possible. But because, as you say, the mandate was implemented after the first installment of tuition was due, there are financial penalties based on percentages and then the, the, the time that has lapsed between the uh, payment and and when you request request the refund. So my understanding is that unless students have a successful legal challenge against the mandate, if they cho chose to withdraw after the policy was announced, they would have financial penalties of some kind to some degree, which is not insignificant when you are 21 and you've probably paid first and last month's rent and your first installment of tuition, and you haven't made plans to go to another university or move to another city. It's not, I mean, I mean, these, this, as I said, this is textbook case of coercion where you're just, um, you know, you're, you're adding insult upon injury to the person who wants to make a choice that you don't prefer, right? So, so that's kind of the first um, problem. The, the, the the salt in the wound of all of this, I think, is that, as you say, no person in Canada is forced to go to university or to a particular one. These mandates are regrettable. They're unfortunate. They are, in my view, unjust, and I think they will ultimately be proven to be illegal. But no person is forced to comply with them. We might feel pressure, we might feel there's an injustice in not being able to be educated in the way that we want when our compliant colleague or peer is choosing to comply. There might be a great injustice in that. There might be coercion involved in that. But at the end of the day, it's still our choice. And you mentioned, and so students who choose to follow the mandate are choosing to follow the mandate. I wish the conditions were different, but the only way, you know, you mentioned earlier that <laughs> while it's a well-known fact and Lisa Bildy has been, has been saying this, that the vaccines don't prevent transmission, that Western is refusing to provide evidence for their, for the rationale behind their policy. All of these things are true, but at the end of the day, members of the Western community who are affected by it need to decide what is more important to them. And the vast majority of people at a rate of 90 some percent have decided that complying and keeping their job and keeping their education is more important than maintaining their integrity and, and bodily autonomy. And that's just a simple fact. And there's an interesting conversation to be had there about what the right decision is personally or for others, what integrity requires, what courage requires. But at the end of the day, I mean, I, I get very tired of people who say that these students are forced to comply. That's an illogical sentence. What's forced upon you is having to make the choice, but choosing one option or over another is not forced upon you. And though I probably sound really harsh in saying that, I think that fact is also very empowering. It's freeing because it makes you realize that you aren't as pushed in one direction over another as you might think. You can say to Western, I don't want a degree from a university that is so 
<laughs> caught up in its own virtue that it thinks it can manipulate students into compliance. I'm going to walk away. Now, I mean, a year ago, this was not the case, but now there are many other universities you can attend in Ontario and in Canada, and you can choose not to go. And, you know, the language you use of, of contractualism, I mean, I, for better or for worse, and I think we've done students and education a great disservice by creating this model, but the upshot of it is that students are still customers and the university, half of the university's funds come from tuition. Right. I mean, we talk about so universities. Is, well, we talk yeah, about them being is, publicly funded, but only half of that money comes from government funds. I think it's three hundred oh, and some I, million. I, you know. So at the end of the day, students need to say, "I'm the customer. I don't like what you're selling. I'm not going to buy it. Change it, or I'm walking away." So I too have. Um the justice's decision in front of me. And I read that paragraph with you. And that's why the nuance here is so important because on the one hand, if, if these mandates hadn't come mid, mid session, um, mm -hmm. hadn't come uh, with um, what, I, what I would call like um, admission of guilt. And, and what I mean by that, uh, if, if, if Western hadn't even said, to you, hey, do you know what? We're, we're doing these mandates. We've changed our mind about the way that we're doing business. You're a tenured professor. And so because we've broken our contract that you can no longer fulfill your responsibilities without being coerced into and we're going to pay you out and we're going to pay everybody out. You know, half of the students, you know what? We, we believe so much in, in mandates that we'll pay everybody back and nobody, um, like you said, because you know, when, when a student decides to go to the university, they've done first and last, they've moved, they, they've uh, committed all of these things, staff, all of these things. It's a pride factor. That's where the right. coercion comes in. That's where the coercion comes in. They're not mm -hmm. offering to right the wrongs of them changing their policies. And, and maybe legally somewhere they've got that in the small print that they can adapt and change their policy on whim. And that's where um, you're, you're really struggling with the coercion side of things. So if I'm a university and I'm going to force, uh, force is the right word, I'm going to change my policies. And then I've worked into the small print that you don't have any form of um, recourse, reaction right. or recourse. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, buyer beware students and lesson be learned if the university administration isn't going to listen to you. So mm -hmm. that's where I see the failing of this decision being where we know that it's not just, hey, a bunch of students didn't like the new policy and they've been, you know, they've been, um, they've been covered, you know, they've been uh, paid back. No, it, it, it's, it's a knowing that everybody's going to pay the cost, as she says, for this choice. But that leads us to the next conversation. And I, go, I'll, let you, I'll let you jump in on that, but I, this moves us to the next one eventually. 
Yeah. So before we springboard to that, let's talk for a minute about, so sometimes I think we're talking a lot about the relationship between the university and the students or the employees, but let's also talk a bit about the relationship between the university and the government and how that works. Yes, ma'am. Let's talk about it. (laughs) So one thing that's important to keep in mind, this was all a flutter over Twitter, I don't know how many months ago, and we've kind of forgotten about it, I think, because he's not quite so cool and and influential anymore. But Justin, dear Justin, (laughs) um, Justin Trudeau made a deal with Pfizer that is very lucrative, cost the Canadian government an enormous amount of money. He ordered, I believe it was 35 million boosters for 2022 and 30 million for 2023. So Justin, it's in his interest to keep mandates going, whether it's at universities or for government or in private sector. The more mandates there are, the greater likelihood there is a vaccine uptake and the greater chance there will be of using up all these ordered boosters. So he has to keep the mandates going. He has to support them on pain of breaking his contract or losing money, right? Which which, which he'll be held account. Also, you might find this interesting. If you go on the Government of Canada website and you look up their Immunization Partnership Fund, so this is the Government of Canada, um, it starts off by saying vaccine and vaccine acceptance and uptake are essential to protect the health of Canadians, blah, 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 the regular stuff we always hear. And then it says through the Immunization Partnership Fund, they've even given it a lovely acronym, IPF, the government of Canada is helping close the gap among populations with lower vaccine uptake by enabling informed vaccination choices. So just, I mean, that's not even two lines of text on my screen, and it's just riddled with ethical problems. So first of all, the language of close the gap among populations with lower uptake is derogatory to suggest that there's something, you know, there's this hierarchy of a class division between the citizens who are getting the vaccines and boosters and those who aren't. There's something wrong with the second group. We have to fix them. We have to close the gap. We have to make all these people who are currently different, acting differently, making different choices. We have to make them the same. Then the language of, we're talking about coercion earlier, enabling, (laughs) enabling informed vaccination choices. I mean, that is, um, that's a paradox, if, you know, of, if, if I've ever seen one. You can't enable a choice. I mean, and if what they mean is we want to do everything possible to support, because that's a definition of enabling, I guess, we want to do everything possible to support a person's informed vaccine choices, then they should not be publicly funding one of those choices over another one. So those are a couple of things that are working in the background that make it, you know, you might wonder, well, why is Western holding on to these mandates when all evidence to the contrary? I mean, even the CDC has recognized the high prevalence of of immunity among previously um, infected persons. I mean, we it's not stopping transmission. People in the university age group are the least likely to get terribly sick from COVID. I mean, all of these things that are so, so well known to us. But there are politicized reasons why we are seeing the imposition of these health mandates beyond reason. And they're financial ones. Well, and that is, that is a great 
uh, comment because you and I, you know, I texted you yesterday and said, look, I want to talk about the ethics of government funded institutions such as health and such as education. And Mm -hmm. before we move right into that, uh, you seem to have dug into the research a little bit. Was Western one of those institutions that was in that partnership? Are they publicly listed? Are we, Western are got, we knowing? Yeah, Western yeah, got, and, and don't quote me. I It's been so long since I looked this up. But they I won't quote great. you literally you're saying it. So you'll be quoted by somebody else. <laughs> you said they it to, got, me. to the best of my memory, it was a, it was a Trillium grant, but please don't. Yeah. Uh, I should look this up for sure because it was months and months ago. I think it was a year ago. Um, the vaccine confidence project, I think it was called and Western, I think got, was it $50,000? I can't remember. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they got money to build, um, a project and their policy is that project. I take it to combat vaccine hesitancy on campus. They've been incredibly successful. I mean, according to the government, they've, you know, they won the contest. Well, and, and again, that's not to mentioning all of the backdoor ideological friendships, political partnerships, uh, uh, businesses that are aligned. When, when Justin Trudeau has 10 doses for every Canadian and at the third dose, most people are done with it. You know, I, I'm thinking of uh, I'm thinking of the the liberal scandal regarding one of the energy plants and and having to give answers of how much money that they had spent in Ontario about destroying I think one of the what was it one of the nuclear plants <clears throat> and uh, and now he's yeah that you're right like he wants to keep selling it and you have. You have all of this backroom friendships, and the reason why I mentioned that because here, here's the crux of the matter for me. And and um, we've been visiting uh, the state of Kentucky for uh, about a month and a half now, and uh, seriously considering making a permanent move. And the reason for that, Julie, is for this topic. I was in a room about a week ago of freedom fighters in our area in Kentucky that, that are here, same concerns as what's going on in Canada, but they're far more reactive and far more concerned about socialism before it's right before us. <laughs> but they're talking about starting their own private health clinic. These, these freedom fighters are starting it. And, and you know, someone puts up their hand and innocently said, well, wait a minute. Like if a doctor doesn't go along with all of the mandates, don't they lose their license? And I had a big hearty laugh out loud. And all the Americans looked over and I, oops, I, I shouldn't have said anything. And, and, and so I had to explain myself. And it's like, well, as far as I understand it, please have an American confirm this for me. But because there was three doctors in the room, mm-hmm. like your private practice is your private practice. If you haven't been charged with any criminal behavior, you just, you might get fired from a hospital, but, but you're not going to mm-hmm. lose your license because you're a free operating individual and you can then go to start your own health clinic. And Hmm. so 
two of the doctors verified that and said, yes, of course. Like I, I didn't go along with the mandates and, and, and that, uh, this is the, this is a penalty that I received at my hospital, but it doesn't affect my practice now. And I've got a great booming practice and I'd love to help you guys build another health practice. But then someone said, well, Hey, why'd you laugh? I said, I'm sorry. I laughed because like, I was going to say out loud, that's only in Canada where, <laughs> where you have, you have such a deep relationship between private health service. And I want to say I private, I don't mean in the privatization yet, but you know what I mean by that. The the private between the doctor and the individual, mm-hmm. the 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 individual being the receiver, that's a very private, intimate, informed consent environment. But now the government in Canada has such an arm right into that private relationship. And then the same things goes on with education and you're thinking about the universities. It's one thing for this judge to make this statement to say, you know, you've got a choice and and you don't like the one or the other. But then think about it. Think about how much money goes in to publicly funded universities where if I – I know so many private schools that would love to receive government money or at least they would love for most Canadians not to have the money taken from them and only redistributed to certain approved government schools. Mm-hmm. This is really where socialized medicine and socialized education becomes problematic because not only do these students have the problem of, oh – I kind of wanted to be educated at Western. Mm. There's not a plethora of private Canadian schools that they can go to for the same prices without still having to pay their taxes to pay the Western bill. Mm-hmm. And it really is problematic. And I, I, I want to get your perspective on it. But, but after just being down here for a month and a half, I am seeing how clear – how clear it is that Canadians are so subtly socialistic. They so accept government interference with everything that they're failing to have an imagination to say, well, wait a minute. What if we, what if we recrafted education? What if we recrafted uh, through privatization healthcare? And I wanted to ask you about that. Have we seen ethical, do we see better ethics when competition is out there, uh, in your experience, or 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 maybe we don't. Like, I, I'm interested to hear your take on this. That's interesting. Let me. I want to go just back to the healthcare example for a minute because when you were saying, you know, oh no, doctors can do whatever they want, and as, unless they're facing criminal charges, you know, they they're not going to be subject to censure. Uh, an interesting development: uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario recently posted on their webpage, it was sort of a page about how you deal with patients when, I don't know if you saw this, they have questions about- I covered this. I know exactly where you're going. uh, It's the same garbage that you just quoted about enabling the, like the, yeah, yeah. they didn't want to enable people through- yeah, go ahead. For people who haven't seen, who are you know watching this and who haven't who haven't seen that or didn't see that episode you did, um, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, the CPSO, is now recommending to their physicians. Remember that physicians ought to be a member of the college, so they're recommending to their physicians, and they can face various kinds of punitive measures through the college, not just criminal charges, right? So they can yeah. lose. Oh, their in Canada, they can. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And they're being they're being advised by the college to prescribe psychotherapy and or psychopharmaceuticals. 
to their patients who are hesitant about taking the COVID vaccines. So that's the level of co- you know coercion. So and that paragraph goes on, Julie, to say that paragraph goes on to say, and also we don't want to enable. They use the word not enabling oh, this behavior, not yeah, enabling anxieties through exemptions. So they're also instructing them to deny exemptions if someone's hesitant to take it. Oh, hey, I'm, yeah, so what I said in my last podcast, I'm hesitant yeah. in taking cocaine because I might become addicted and I might OD. Oh, that's bad. <laughs> Hesitancy about your own health choices you, is terrible. Worry. Yeah, it's a, I mean, <laughs> it's such a surreal you mentioned, uh, was it 1984 at the beginning of our chat? It's such a surreal, uh, fantastical, dystopian place we've gotten ourselves to. But, but the question you raise about education, I mean, let me first say something about how, you know, what I think has gone wrong with post-secondary institutions. And, and I do think that universities in Canada were built largely on, for better or worse, largely on this classical liberal model of education that's supposed to develop a person's, all the things you need to be as free as possible, right? So critical thinking, emotional regulation, and understanding of the treasures of the past, and and and, and building up your, your, your courage and your competence and all of these things. But the funding policies that make these public institutions possible ignore the autonomy of the student or the customer and the fundamental importance of the academy and its unique role in advancing knowledge for the benefit of the student and for the benefit of society. And they've introduced policies that prioritize outcomes that can be commercialized. Right. So I was just reading Western Strategic Action Plan uh, not that long ago, and and it talks about all these deliverables, right, preparing students to be good 21st century citizens, but not in the sense that they'll develop skills that will make their lives better or other people's lives better, concrete payoff skills that can be commercialized for the institution. And this approach is so antithetical to the history of the academy, right? So our word academy comes from Plato's um, school, and that was from in the, the Grove of Academus, which was a, a sort of a grove, like an orchard um, in Athens. And the, the role of the academy was supposed to be about supporting the search for knowledge and its inherent value for society, and not just about narrow commercialized interests. I am so like I just want to say, can you try to be a little bit more excited and angry when you say these things? Because like <laughs> the passion, no, like um, this is this, this is really important material for Canadians to grapple with because even what you've just said there, if if you're a university and your funding model is dependency upon the government for half of your income. That does not produce all of the things, the characteristics in your faculty and your staff and in your business model that you're tr- that you've just said you're trying to create with the individual, which is ultimate liberty. It's a system that then trains dependence, and then you have to adopt an ideology that will then help your students become supporters of that dependent model. So. 
it's oh man when you were talking it was almost like you were quoting from 1984 you know good virtuous 24 21st century citizens like that lacks definition mm-hmm. it lacks an actual definition of virtue and and really that's the heart of maybe where i was questioning here julie when when we've got publicly funded schools with absolutely a monopoly like i homeschool my kids you know that and i've had to pay for other mm-hmm. kids education for the other like nobody's contributing to my kids education other than the people who are in our lives being a part of that but i still have to pay for other mm-hmm. canadian kids education because there mm-hmm. is this there is this model of funding that is highly dependent upon the government and I love the way that you said that because what you've connected for people, and again, maybe you don't want to go as far as I do, where I, I literally want to try to privatize all of these things, but you've certainly mm. you've certainly put put your finger on the problem, right? Like our our, our actions have to match our words, and so we're, if we're a school that doesn't have to compete with anybody uh, substantially, competition. Uh, it, it, it doesn't become a part of the equation, and then and being a competitor means adapting to your to your, to your clientele, and and you know, I find it fascinating uh, how so you put that together. Here, a question that I, I find interesting is 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 public education in principle impossible? Right? Is is it possible to have a successful public education system? that achieves a, a valuable set of goals, then you need to define what those are. But I mean, my view is that it's a, a very traditional classical model of education where you are developing the student's critical thinking skills. And that doesn't matter if you're in engineering or in the physical sciences or in English or visual arts, it doesn't matter. It's about um, critical thinking and that frees the individual from dogma and compliance, doesn't further entrench it. But what's but, but what I think is the case is that publicly funded education, whether it's possible in principle, is very prone or susceptible to what we're seeing now, right? It's very, um, so, I mean, if we're just- Especially when you have judgments from these judges that are making yeah. those types of references. Hey, you know what? You can choose to go to another school. The choice is yours. You, you may not like that choice, but the choice is yours. And then it- goes to people like you and I to go, well, really, is it their choice? You know, what are the, what other schools in Canada a year ago had this, you know, particularly when they were mm-hmm. first jabbed? And then second of all, okay, now they've got that choice, but you've already taken their money. And then thirdly, we've got a whole system that works towards only certain schools winning. So I think to answer your question, I, as a pastor, I'm I'm not trained to just give the question I feel like we have to leave people with some wisdom. And so I'd say, no, I don't think, I think the day, the, the, the days have passed now. I think we've, it's been a long experiment since uh, Egerton Ryerson about nationalized education. And I think now we're seeing the fruition of it. And I would actually say, no, we need, we need privatization and competition in all of these matters so that those who are going to serve free thinking, critical, uh, you know, research, cr- critical thinkers, those who have researched, we're going to serve them, have the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. And I, it is the comfort of the, the the nationalized program. Because again, taxation is one way of receiving a, 
a payment, right? And if you're receiving a payment that is coercive in nature, then you then mm-hmm. there's only legal recourse to not make that payment. So I, I I would answer your question categorically no. I think we need to get out mm-hmm. of all of these, get the government out of all of these different industries, mm-hmm. and you know allow get them back just in their lane of infrastructure mm-hmm. so, for support for these things. And the rule of law rather than, you know, imposing themselves upon these institutions. We've certainly seen the government use this current funding formula whereby public universities get grants um, as, as a way to further their corporate ends. So the degree to which the government of Canada has a business deal with pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer and what we might call a, a civic deal, maybe, with a university, um, the degree to which, you know, Western imposes its mandate furthers our federal government's corporate ends. And that is, you know, that, that is incredibly problematic. It's, it's sort of like a, a systemization of ideology. You know, we've, we've created institutions that are rewarded and and people that move through them that are rewarded only to the degree that they support a kind of of politicization or ideology. You know, um, it's interesting, there are certain universities in the States that have designated free speech zones, which is so (laughs) laughable to me because it implies that everywhere else on campus, you're, you're not allowed to speak freely. Right. I mean, this is the this is where we've gotten to. So our current formula, our current and as horrible as that is, what is really atrocious is that the customers, the students, the families who support them aren't revolting en masse. You know, the the students who got Brett Weinstein fired, the students who stood outside the classroom vilifying Jordan Peterson when he spoke at Queen's breaking windows, when inside he was really talking about the virtues of the old academy, you know, beauty and charity and kindness and truth and all of these things. This this kind of corporatization of education has created this unthinking but vicious mob. And, And I agree with you that, I mean, you know, you homeschool your children. I never thought of that as a necessity, but now it is a clear necessity for me. I can't imagine my child is young and a little ways away from that, but I can't imagine doing anything else because I can't imagine ever knowing what I know now, feeling like an education system that is run by, ultimately backed by our government is a trustworthy educator of our children. And, you know, one of the reasons why private universities are so expensive is because, I mean, there's an economy of scale at work here, right? And if they had more students, the tuition for each individual wouldn't need to be as high. And so it's, if we did see a mass exodus from our public schools to to support some of these private institutions, you've mentioned some of them, there are these online schools, there's Barry Weiss's, you know, Austin Academy, I forget what it's called, but I think people need to say, this isn't working anymore for me. It's not working for our society. It's gotten us to the point where, you know, COVID can, or Pfizer can be, um, you know, 
vilified in the courts and forced to pay billions of dollars and then turn around and make the vaccines that we're all mandated to take. I mean, it's gotten us to that place in society. And we need to stand up for ourselves. We need to say, I'm not buying the product you're peddling anymore. And there are alternatives. People who homeschool their children, people who go to um, non-public universities are typically very happy with their experiences. I don't think I've ever met a homeschool parent who said, well, that was a disaster. I wish I didn't do that. And that's not to say that there aren't better and worse learning environments in the home, but you know, no, I, I'm I mean, you're smiling a because teacher, I'm sure. Yeah, like I'm, I'm my my whole my whole comment to parents who start homeschooling is the more you do it, the less you care. And and what I mean by that is education. When you when you talk about the liberal arts in the way that you have, right? When you talk about um, teaching hard work, teaching critical thinking faculties, teaching the importance of honesty. I, I began homeschooling when I heard a sermon from a guy named Kevin Swanson, who just basically said, look through the book of Proverbs for your philosophy of education. And it's all those things. It's if, if you're lazy, you don't eat. If you're dishonest, people don't trust you. Um, if you don't fear God, you have no moral capacity to enter into contractual agreements because you have no ethical foundation. And he kind of went through all of these things. That's education. And mm -hmm. You can go work at any Fortune 500 company. You can own any Fortune 500 company with those types of attributes. I loved how you brought up, you know, uh, uh, respect for history, a, a love. A, 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 I think you used the word treasury, right? you know, the, the treasury of history and, and all these types of things. And mm -hmm. when you look at education like that, you realize, oh, my kids are reading fantastic books. Oh, my kids are going and helping working with that individual who's a fantastic business person. Oh, my kids, uh, instead of having to spend an hour on a bus, my kids sit down and play the piano. And 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 uh, so, I, you know, I think my daughter plays mm -hmm. the piano, the guitar, and she sings like an angel. My second daughter plays the piano, the drums. And just, I catch her singing all the time. Both of my boys play the guitar, the piano. My one's learning the banjo. And a lot of that comes from, you know, we, we partner with a private tutor for a while, a, a private uh, a music teacher. And then they just have the time to do it. Like, it's just a better, so all this to say, what I'm getting at is this. You use a word, and I want to conclude on that. You use a word called imagine. And that's really what, I as let's imagine two scenarios, okay? Let's go into uh, George Orwell's book, 1984, and let's just reimagine that scenario. A scenario where everything is about um, holding up Big Brother, everything is about holding up the greater good, everything is about hiding my true feelings and my true beliefs from the world. Cause I'm fearful of coercive consequences. Uh, I'm living in a world where judges say, Hey, like you still had a choice. You just chose to go to jail. Like that, like you, 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 you had a choice. You just had to choose to leave all of the money that you agreed to pay them and them not to educate you. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what Canada and some of parts of the United States and many other European countries are becoming. And then there's another world and we're going to use an imagination and that, and that is imagining a world where individuals 
took responsibility for their lives, partnered together to um, make change in culture. And that culture began with localized, uh, independent, well-funded schools and well-funded health clinics and hospitals and things like that. And eventually we're able to change the world where the government didn't get to force them to pay much of their income towards supporting its initiatives. Mm-hmm. And think of how wealth would transfer. Think about how freedom would transfer. And so I definitely would rather be on this podcast imagining that world with Dr. Julie Panessi than spending any more time inside crazy, bizarro, head down world. And really, that's kind of, I agree with you, that's what it's going to take. You know, the more people who say what you just said, I can't imagine any longer that a government partnered education educator is a trustworthy educator. The more people who just say, great, so I'm going to do something about it, the more they, you know, we will see a privatization over time that will lead to more freedom. And, and so folks reimagine, like, again, this topic, if you're, if you're a Canadian, you've never heard other Canadians talk this way, like start thinking about all of the possibilities of what you could do for your kids in the future, for institutions in the future, for your healthcare in the future. And don't just give over to the status quo because the judges are clearly not on our side. The judges clearly, as Julie, you just said, they're literally saying, well, look, if you weren't physically forced to get an injection in your arm, then you had a choice. Mm-hmm. And um, that's not good. And the only way that that changes if, if, is if the masses reform. I won't say revolt. If the masses reform, we need another cultural reformation. Julie, last words to you. Yeah. Well, thanks, Mike. One thing I think we also need to remember is we talk sometimes as though education is the only kind of education there is, is formalized education that happens within the walls of a university or a college. And, and that is not the traditional model of education for millennia before us. um, People learned by apprenticing, they learned by example from their parents, from other exemplars in society. They learned by practice, they learned by living, they learned by exploring their own curiosity. And there are, I know a number of people who are very successful in life, and I don't just mean monetarily successful, I mean they're happy with their lives, they're fulfilled, who are potters and artists and construction workers and writers and historians, and and they all have unconventional educational trajectories, let me say. Um, don't, Don't be fooled by the marketing of our institutions and our culture that tell you only this piece of paper, only this degree or or diploma will be the key that unlocks the quality life. There are a lot of costs to it. Literal financial costs are are some of it. Look at that piece of paper, think about it. Is that worth $100,000 to you? Because that's what the average student is coming out of university. That's the kind of debt they have. And the vast majority of people, it takes more than 10 years to pay it off and some people never pay it off. And that's not to say it's not valuable. I learned a lot from some very good professors, but that is a huge cost. 
and it may be costing us other things today too. So to quote the very profound Matt Damon uh, regarding higher education, how you like them apples, Western? How you like them apples? Julia, it's been great again. Days, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on. And everybody, please go and support uh, the students that we're representing through Liberty Coalition Canada as we battle against um, Western uh, we really want these students to be able to have their own freedoms and their own choices, and uh, we really believe in their human rights. So um, James Kitchen is representing them. You can go to our website, www.LibertyCoalitionCanada, and you can investigate what we're doing. Julie, I know you're working with the Democracy Fund, and uh, I know that Lisa mm -hmm. Bildy is doing some work for the Western students in partnership with the Democracy Fund as well. And so, folks, you know... Uh, when you get into these freedom fights, Julie and I were talking, you know, different groups can start saying, well, I just want my list and I want this. And, and uh, we're not here for that. And so if you feel the need to support these young students and you want to go to the Democracy Fund as well, I know Julie would appreciate that. And she does really great work over there. So thanks for coming on, Julie. Everybody, Godspeed as you uh, go and try to reimagine so many things outside of the Justin Trudeau 1984 vision of for Canada. Godspeed.